1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. I'm your host, Nick Sigelski, joined with my co host, Armand Farouk. And today we have a round of two with Luke Floyd, who is a strategic account executive over at
0: Deal. Armand, why should people listen? Well, there are very few people who are able to carve up a territory like a turkey on Thanksgiving, like Luke Floyd. Holy smokes, every direction, every slice of the market, he has a perfect plan for how to work his A's, B's, C's with his SDRs, and then along the way, educate his customers that he's reaching out to for the first time when trying to break into a new territory and a new market. But wait, if you want to slice your territory like a turkey, Luke Floyd is giving you his territory planning spreadsheet. Go download it in the show notes. He gave it away for free and we didn't even ask him. So you better go get it. A three, a
1: two, a one. Slice it like a turkey. steal them. All right, Luke, welcome back to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three.
2: Absolutely. Number one, pick your winners. So take your existing successful clients and case studies to target lookalike accounts. That allows you to have a hypothesis as a starting point instead of just grasping it at thin air. So for example, at Deal, I work specifically with clients that use a high volume of contractors. There's a lot of use cases I can target, talent, gig economy, whatever it might be. I focus specifically on BPO because I have some case studies there. Beautiful. What's number two? Second, group accounts for relevance at scale. So basically when you comb your potential accounts to select those that are winners, now you have a sub pool, but maybe you have 400 accounts. You don't want to rewrite messaging 400 times, but if you're able to subgroup those into let's say five different industries or five different growth stages, you can make relevant messaging and that investment in time once and then reuse it over and over again. Love it. Round us out. What's number three? Absolutely. You got to call your plays. So not all plays or ways to get in accounts and open them up are created equal. Some are super high performing, like introductions, referrals. Some are very low performing, like a random cold call. So you're the quarterback of the deal. It doesn't really matter whether you get in for the opportunity and SDR gets in and exec hands it to you. You're expected to go close the business. So group the accounts, prioritize how to get in. Start with your highest performing channels first.
0: All right, Luke, we're about to kick off the new year, and you just got a new territory of 75 to 80 accounts, and I've heard a lot of different approaches for working a new territory. Some people are like, let me comb through all of it and tier it at ABC. Other people are like, let me be like Nick at a taco bar and just eat all of the guacamole that's hanging around before anyone else can get it, aka eating all the
2: low-hanging fruit first and then going to the rest. How do you approach a new territory when you get it? Yeah, it depends on the momentum I'm trying to build. So in this case, in the territory that I've been assigned in BPOs, I'm really trying to do a corner of the market or target the market kind of play. So I'm trying to get some wins. I also already had a win that I had been working on for a number of years with a client. And so understanding who might they be connected to, because I know they'll probably give me a referral after working with me for two years. So that's really the way that I think about narrowing it. Obviously I've done lead scoring in the past and that can be helpful if you have a lot of accounts, like hundreds. But in the couple dozen range, you absolutely have the ability to spend a day or two, plug into ChatGPT or LinkedIn sales navs analysis for AI, and then you can quickly pull out some common themes that you can then group by.
1: Luke, how are you organizing all of this? Are you creating custom fields in your CRM? Are you exporting to a Google Sheet? Where are you actually keeping track of this stuff?
2: It's a combination of both. So we have details in Salesforce, for example, about not only the industry, but then the specialties within the industry. Because oftentimes, as you know, the industry fields are too broad. They're not specific enough. So I pull the specialties. I go find all of our clients, let's say, with an outsourcing specialty keyword in the BPO industry. And then I'll be able to find case studies or uh, successful clients from there. And then I can go find maybe prospect accounts that either aren't owned or I could target or build that list, and then I can start vetting from that total list of who we actually want to target. Once I have the idea of who I target, I put them into basically a spreadsheet for execution. And I can give you all a template afterwards. It's basically the call your play execution. So what all the admin work do you need to do? Like Twitter, LinkedIn, do you have your Google Alerts set up, do you have all that? And then separately, what are your primary, secondary, and tertiary plays? Because normally the first one isn't going to work. Everyone take a look in the show notes.
0: Luke Floyd did it on the last one. He's doing it here again. And we didn't even ask. He's giving you his account template for free. All right, go get it. So Luke, I did something similar at Carta when I would get a new patch. And I would be like, okay, first thing I'm going to do is like show me everyone who has a recent round of funding because that was a trigger to buy Carta. And I'd be like, okay, there's 30 over there. And then show me everyone who's backed by this investor. And let me get those next 30 over here. And then eventually I would work my way through the long tail and then just go through the rest of them one by one. How do you think about the stack ranking of what comes first, second, third? Because you mentioned those categories that you're looking
2: for. I'm sure you didn't just wake up and be like, okay, today's BPO day. How do you come up with those? Yeah, I feel like where I have the most confidence. Because as you know, in sales, particularly opening doors, it really doesn't matter what you say. It's more about how you say it, which is why these things like permission-based openers changed over the past couple of years because it's how people say it, not what they're saying. And so if I have confidence and I've recently worked with a BPO client, then I might target them that way. Similarly, I might start with a broad list in a tool like LinkedIn SalesNab that can show me where I have a lot of team link intros or exec intros that I could potentially make. And then I'm going to obviously cherry pick and prioritize those that have a higher converting channel to open up the account.
0: And so if we unpack this and we say, you've now got a subsection of those 75 accounts, we'll call it 12 of them that fall within your comfort zone or they're perfect ICPs related to one of the case studies that you have. You mentioned in your top three actionable takeaways that you're now gonna start calling your plays.
2: So you have those 12 accounts. How do you decide what you actually do with those things? Yeah, moving from list to action, and this is the fun part because basically you have to look at your own conversion rates. So hopefully you have some kind of dashboard that RevOps has provided for you to tell you by lead source how you're converting. I know if I get an exec introduction to an exec on their side, I have a 60% close rate. Okay, I'm going to prioritize that first. Whereas if I'm just cold calling, I'm only going to have like a 5% close rate. So that's one way. You have to know your own numbers. Second, outside of the confidence, I think you also have to understand the hypothesis. So one of the reasons why I was targeting BPO is, you know, deals specifically, we work with contractors and employees and help teams hire, pay, and manage around the world. A big topic right now with outsourcers is how is AI going to affect us? And not only is it going to replace the things that we do, but are we going to have to staff up a lot of AI talent? And so because there's this uncertainty in that market, anywhere there's complexity, there's opportunity for me as a salesperson to come in and build a narrative. And so that's where I can work with my account-based marketing team. I can work with my SDRs to start testing those hypotheses. The final thing I'll say is, you don't wanna go right out the gate at your best stop. And I know that might seem counterintuitive, but for example, in the BPO world, I'm not going after the biggest, most important BPO in the space, because I wanna make sure that we have finely tuned our hypothesis, because it just starts as an informed guess, effectively. And I don't know, I'm not in the BPO world, but if I go target a couple of smaller accounts and they can give me feedback, you're right on the money, this resonates, this is what I'm hearing, I have even more confidence when I show up to that CFO or CPO call with a Fortune 500. That's entirely different call than if I hadn't had those wins up front.
1: Luke, you used a term earlier that you called, I'm running the corner, the market
2: play. And I haven't heard that expression before. What does it mean? So I've seen this done twice now at deal. And basically, you can look at various industries and you're offering in waves. For example, if you're selling CRM, it's a very mature industry. Everybody knows what they need. They have a list of requirements. When we first started selling employer of record services, the two legacy, main legacy competitors didn't even have a tech platform. It was all done via spreadsheets. And so, if you see gaps in earlier waves of development in a market, you can get in and potentially corner the market. And that allows you to have a strategic impact. So, yes, as a sales rep, I care about my commission and my bonuses. And, you know, yeah, the equity even matters. But what's really cool is seeing the logos I bring in on a board deck that our CEO is presenting about a strategic initiative. That is power, I think, internally for an AE if you can get to that level of having influence. And then follow-up question to that,
1: you mentioned how you're working with your ABM team. We haven't really had a seller come on and talk about how they're partnering with account-based marketing, ABM.
2: What are you doing? Ultimately, you know, as a salesperson, I'm not given the mandate of go call an email. I'm given the mandate of closing business. And so to be able to open the business, I have to help my marketing team do their job because a lot of my leads are from inbound opportunities and book a demo form, things like that, as most of the tech sellers out there or any other sellers might see. So I don't think of my role in terms of traditional roles. I think of it in terms of work to be done. In this case, I know that if I need to get into a BPO company and my account-based marketing team can target their executives with specific digital ad copy... Sure, I could just hand those over to my ABM team and say, have fun. Or I could also say, what if we prioritize this product first? Do we have ad copy for that? Or even better, what if we had an industry-specific landing page or industry-specific copy about how deal is changing the game for BPO providers? Now we're building a narrative that multiple tools in the toolbox can use. I can use it to porn toys my outreach, execs, and then the ABM team as well. So there's no reason why if you're an AE, you shouldn't be at least doing that work of helping inform your team on the way the content needs to be shaped. And if collaboration isn't happening today, you would do your company a huge service just by messaging, slacking, teaming, whatever it is, your marketing counterparts and just asking them, hey, do we have the ability to do direct ads on LinkedIn or on socials based on maybe a company name or LinkedIn URL? What do I need to give you so you can do that? because that prepares the battlefield in a way, right? So you might bomb a battlefield before you send troops on it to soften it up. And in this way, it's very similar with the ads. You basically get your narrative out there, so that way they have some context and some awareness ahead of time. And
0: so Luke, this is actually a really important point to
2: underscore because
0: there are two types of markets. There's a rip and replace, everyone knows what they want type of market. And then there's you're replacing the status quo spreadsheets, basically an existing manual process type of market. And I would actually argue in many ways, the replacing status quo when there's no competitor in play is sometimes harder because you oftentimes lose to nothing because people are very skeptical of what you're selling. So I know Deal because I work in tech, but someone at a business process outsourcing company is probably like, what is Deal and why do you spell it (laughs) D-E-E-L? And so what are you doing in your outreach that's different from if you were
2: reaching out to someone in tech who knows everything in the world about deal. Absolutely. Well, I want to shamelessly plug Beck Holland here because I stole this from her. So basically, I am building relevance at scale through four different custom fields or personalization or key points, whatever you want to call it. One is the industry. So other people in the BPO are facing this challenge. And so this is often your hypothesis. Here's how we're helping other clients in the BPO industry. What challenges do you have? Some might call it the pain buffet, right? Second is the company level. So I personally might sell into HR or finance or talent or legal teams. And the way I approach them, there might be some commonality because I'm reaching out to Carta, I might have Carta specific relevance. There's also personal relevance. I find that's the least valuable for an AE because you can't replicate it and reuse it. And then finally, there's role specific relevance. So if I have a really role specific emotional grabbing message for accounting managers, how before they used our solution, they wanted to pull their hair out, and then I worked with them, and now it takes them less than an hour to do their payroll at the end of the month, when it used to take a week, I can take that to other accounting managers, and say, hey, I know a little bit about your world, this is what I've done with them, but maybe it's not even relevant. And I really love, and I'm sure we'll get to it, but I really love to include pressure relief, basically a pressure release valve at the end, and a soft call to action. Because any kind of outreach you're doing, you're not asking for time, you're effectively trying to judge and generate interest. This is why we've been able to have a long tail effect on our accounts from our account-based marketing motions and those where we coordinate all this effort. They might not come in this quarter. They might actually come in next quarter because they read the email and then filed it away as maybe I'll need that vendor in the future. If you don't even, number one, get the email read because your deliverability is forward and you're spamming or you don't optimize it, or if your message doesn't resonate like a human being they want to work with, you're not going to have that long tail effect. So in a way, again, back to making the most of the time we have, I don't have to keep reaching out in order to ensure that these companies might come in. They might come in in six months. And I've already done that work six months ago.
1: So based on that, when do you determine that you're going to stop reaching out to an account and just let the long till be the one that ultimately gets you the meeting?
2: It depends on how much value there is. (laughs) And what I mean by value is how much juice is there to squeeze, so to speak. So for example, I just mentioned a client that I had chased for two years. I stayed on them for two years and three sales cycles because I knew they were moving from a manual world to a deal world. And I knew what that could be. That's why I just stayed on them, just stayed in touch with them. If I don't see that opportunity, maybe it's a B or a C level account that maybe the use case just doesn't quite line up or you, have, you don't have some feature yet. It's usually easier to just let those things go and then find ways to stay relevant to them. Over time, The final thing I want to call out that Armand had mentioned was about in the early industries, the more nascent ones where you're taking a manual process, you often lose the status quo because many sellers lack the ability for the client to paint a vision. We can tell them that a digital process is better, but until inside their own head, they see that process for themselves, it doesn't click. So what I try to do is arm my prospects with tools, like somebody comes in and says, Oh, I think I need an HRAS, but I also have these contractors and this global payroll issue. And so I started to think like, oh, how are you thinking about going about solving that? They might just be focused on HRAS, but actually they could do all in one spot. That wasn't something they had considered or were ready for. So instead, I have a one-page project plan or a one-page business case where I, again, uh, stole from Nate Nasrallah at Fluent, where basically you can help them paint the vision internally for what things could be. And so if you find yourself either losing to ghosting, if you find yourself losing to no decision or status quo, you need to do a better job of painting a vision. That doesn't mean you need to do more talking. It means you either need to ask more impactful questions, align them with references, provide more relevant case studies or examples so that they internally can move to a point where they think it's possible.
0: So what Luke is referencing here is an HRIS platform is something like a Gusto or a Workday or an HR platform that it typically does everything it helps you like track all of your employees pay them etc and the comparison that I'll make here is that if you're always used to getting a burger at one restaurant and a milkshake at another restaurant the first time someone's like you want a burger and a shake you're like what the hell i remember the first time i had a burger and a milkshake my mouth was just confused and so it took me some time and like sipping milkshake and eating the burger and all that stuff to get used to realizing that like oh you can get a burger and a milkshake at the same place versus if you just throw it all together, people are going to be like, that's a little bit weird. And so Luke, I'm curious for you, you jump onto a discovery call and it's probably a lot more education and warming someone up to that potential vision before you're just like, all right, here's your business case, go for it. What does your sales cycle look like with someone who came in expecting just the hamburger and you expand their horizons to burger and shake?
2: So I'll give you a real concrete example. I was just chatting with someone. They're not making a decision until May of 2024 based on some timelines in their own business. She only wanted an HRAS because that's all she thought she really needed. And so on the call, I showed her what she asked to see, again, because we want to meet them where they are. And then I sent a follow-up email and she responded, but I could tell that she was maybe concerned that we didn't just do HRAS, right? And I just want an HRAS. So instead, I, a couple of days after I sent the follow-up email, I sent her just a quick email saying, hey, I know you mentioned that you have a requirements list for your HRAS search. turns out she didn't. She was saying that she did, right? And so I was saying, well, actually, we have a template that I can share, you know, deals HRAS when folks typically look for it and the types of categories and features and functions that you might need. This helps her do her search. So I'm helping her make a better decision. This starts to paint the vision. Then she has a bunch of questions. Well, how do you integrate with Google Sheets? And how do you do this and that? And so I answer those questions. And then she makes a key distinction. She brings back to the emotional level. She says, wow, I can see why this is possible or how it's possible now. It just feels like there's a lot of work to get this done internally. So now she's shifting from it wasn't possible to it could be possible, but it's hard. And that's where our jobs come in, right? We make the hard happen. And so now I send her over a one-page project plan. What if you use something like this? Listen, I don't know how change happens at your organization. We haven't really chatted about it yet, but Do you think a tool like this might be helpful to help you build consensus internally? And then she's telling me, absolutely. And these are the people we need to get it in front of. And here's the timeline that we need to do it by. I'm not doing any of that. She's doing all of it. Because at the end of the day, if I would have just kept pushing from my perspective, that would have been a closed loss, no response, ghosted, because she didn't see herself or that vision and capability in our initial discussion. So you can either meet them exactly where what they're asking for, exactly that vision and you fulfill it right away or you can help shape their vision to what you can't fulfill.
0: This is so smart because if you've ever had your parents teach you how to swim, the ones who do it the right way, they don't just like chuck you in the pool and they're like, all right, swim to the other side. If you make someone look across the pool and it's like 50 feet and eight feet deep and all this stuff, they're just gonna cry and stay in the shallow end. But what you do is you solve the first problem they expect you to solve. They came to solve the HRAS problem you solve that problem first. And then what you do is you show one rung outside of it, just enough to pique the curiosity, knowing that you're going to show them seven more layers throughout the sales cycle. But if you showed them everything all at once, they would be like, "Ah, it's, it's more software than what we need. And I've seen so many sellers lose deals because they don't dose what they can sell. They don't win one feature, one battle, one battleground at a time. They try to win the whole platform all at once and they lose the entire show. On the note of dosing, I actually want to go all the way back to some of the stuff that you mentioned around carving up your territory because it is the beginning of the year. You talked about you don't want to blast your entire territory, reap your entire harvest, and then starve for the rest of the year. Yeah, You want to be intelligent about picking different patches, and making sure that your wins and your opportunities are semi evenly distributed throughout the quarter, period, year, whatever you wanna call it, right? So how do I actually do that? Are you basically just putting part of your territory on ice? Are you picking patches of five to 10 at a time? How do I dose my territory without just blasting it and burning it to the ground?
2: It depends on how sophisticated your tech stack is and your ability to maybe nurture things and segment things. Like I said, with me personally, we're in the process of implementing on ABM, but I'm still just using it in a spreadsheet and calling this place. And so my coordination with my assigned SDR is really the limiting factor of what I can tackle. And so basically when we first went into BPO in particular, I just had him go grab all the potential BPO accounts we could go after. And then we started prioritizing, okay, which are the ones we might want to start with based on not want to spoil the whole bunch up front. We just want to do a couple here and there on the back end, we're all connecting. I'm still connecting with folks, particularly if you're a salesperson in the BPO space, you might get a connection request from me because that's another area. The way that I'm getting in is chatting with growth leaders and sales leaders. What are your goals? Uh, What are the business? What are you seeing? What trends? I'm being assigned this industry and I don't want to sound like an idiot. I want to sound like I know what I'm talking about. I'm not there to sell them deal. I really want to know what they're seeing in their day-to-day and how the changes are impacting them. So you can do that work ahead of actually targeting your ICP. So you sound more informed or you can have other people like the ABM team or the SDR team do some of the more coverage and volume work while you just pick and effectively exhaust only five to 10 at a time. Cause effectively what I do is my assigned SDR and I, we meet up on every Monday morning and then we basically split up the accounts. Okay. Here are the five we're going to prioritize this week. And then we prioritize those five until we get answers. Usually we can get an answer. If we know they're opening and they're not responding, that's an answer. Usually we can get an answer, but that's the way we do it. And then once we have those five checked off, we'll go to the next five. There's probably some kind of sophisticated software that solves this, but it's just spreadsheets right now for me. I have a question for you because I'll be honest, like I've led
0: a couple SDR teams. We've done this a million different ways, and I haven't found the perfect way to work with an SDR so far. I've heard folks divvy up accounts where it's like, you take these accounts, I take these accounts. That's model number one. I've heard folks say, you take above-the-line prospects, I take below-the-line prospects. That's model number two. And then I've heard a third model, which is, I as an AE am basically going to do nothing other than one-off touches and help you with research. SDR, you're going to be doing all the prospecting touches, and I'm going to be working on account strategy. And that's more the overlay strategy, number three. So are you a one, two, three? How do you split up and divide and conquer with your SDR?
2: Yeah. So I'm mostly a two. However, there are some accounts that I'll keep my assigned SDR off of simply because the highest converting channel, like an exec intro, is absolutely the way we want to deliver the message. Remember, how we say things matters just as much as what we say. And so If my CEO, Alex, gives an introduction, regardless of what message you use, that's going to come across so much stronger than if my SDR books an outbound demo. In that world, I think it matters which play you're running. Personally, the way that I divvy up is we'll say, okay, above, like, let's say on these five, you tackle below the line, generate interest. Okay, the people ops analyst is opening the emails a lot. I'm going to send a message, a strategic message, one-off, maybe a cold call, whatever it is, to the chief people officer. Because it sounds like in this function, there is interest. So I go above the line in that function, and then they say that my assigned SDR stays below the line. And so basically, I use the SDRs almost like a homing beacon in a way of homing me in to like, where's their potential interest? You can use same thing like LinkedIn sales. And I will tell you what ads people have engaged with, or maybe your ABM team has an effectiveness and click through rate and all that good stuff metrics that they can share with you from your marketing tool. So using those intent signals to then prioritize your action on those items, to me, it's a question of, yes, not only the efficiency of the conversion, then also not all folks are created equal. Not all AEs are the same, not all SDRs are the same. Some SDRs, it might be their very first role out of college and they might not have built as much business acumen yet. You probably don't want them directly targeting the CFO at a prime account where you might have a better message to send or a better way to send it And you can't control and edit every single message your assigned SDR ever sends. So it's better to just kind of build guardrails around what types of accounts do I want ABM to touch? What types of accounts do I want my execs to help? Do I want my SDRs to help? And then you can call your plays and run it accordingly.
1: I want to ask you about these plays. It sounds like there's a spectrum. You talked about the exec to exec intro, which is probably the highest converting play, highest likelihood of getting a meeting. And then you talked about the total and utter cold outreach, which is probably the lowest converting play. What are the other
2: plays that you're running in between those two? So exec outreach, shared investor, mutual investor. There's a partnerships angle, like with Armand, previously at Pave. We have a partnership with Pave. I was working on selling into some accounts there with them with deals. So there's a number of angles that you can go at. From there, you know, there's a lot of other people that have exhaustive lists of various sales plays you can run. I'm not that type of guy. I want to have five to 10 that I know like the back of my hand and it can execute without needing to read a book. And so those are the five to 10 that I stay with. And then below that, I would have like strategic outreach. So realistically, I can probably open 20 to 30% of my target account with strategic outreach and then volume outreach so that just plain cold, you know, the SDR is the only one doing the work. It's just cold email, cold call. That's the way that I'm typically prioritizing those. And then maybe you get like a coworker introduction to maybe somebody that worked with previously that's at the account that can give you info.
1: Oh, man. I think the, the most chilling thing about all of that, Luke, was that you had to set up a partnership with Armand, someone who has <laughs> been riddled with trauma from his boyhood with this burger and shake, sickening blender smoothie combination. And getting thrown into the deep end, apparently. <laughs> that must have been a challenging partnership. But sadly, we are running out of time in this interview. And so, We've talked about a lot of really great things salespeople should be doing. Now I got to ask you about a shouldn't. And so the final question is, what is one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps?
2: FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt. Don't do it. It's low behavior. It's poor integrity. Don't talk bad about your competitors. Don't lean into the pain funnel and make your prospects keep talking about something that they clearly don't want to. Don't negate the emotions of prospects when they come to you and say, hey, this is expensive. If you tell them they're wrong, they're going to pull back, right? If you say, no, it's not, or it's expensive compared to what? Yeah, probably feels like it's expensive because you're using manual and not paying anything for your payroll previously. So you want to affirm them. You want to meet them where they're at. You want to tell them, you know, maybe they searched long and hard to get that existing vendor. And if you come in and tell them how everything's wrong, they might be the champion for that vendor. You're telling them they are wrong. So fear, uncertainty, doubt, don't do it. A lot of managers and VPs are going to disagree with me. But as a practitioner, I can hold my head high at the end of the day and say that I don't talk bad about my competitors. I don't lie or mislead my clients about feature sets and future selling and all that fun stuff. And I try to lean in and affirm them with their emotions. Even if we don't get a win, I have a future buyer I can go back to.
1: Amazing. And we've got a future guest we're going to need to bring on for a round three one day. Luke, thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Your top four actionable takeaways from this episode with Luke Floyd. Number one, when you're prospecting, start to look for lookalike accounts. For example, if you're having a ton of success with intellectual property law firms, go after more accounts like that as opposed to trying to break in with insurance defense law firms. Number two, when you're prospecting, First, you should be using the channel that has the highest likelihood of getting you a meeting and getting a response. It might be something like an exact intro or a referral before you use the low likelihood methods of trying to break into an account like cold outreach to
0: them. Number three, there are three ways that Luke would split up an account with his SDRs. Number one, for his triple A tier accounts, he would personally reach out to all of them because those are the ones where he's gonna try to get an executive referral to. Then he takes his B tiers and he splits them up above and below the line with his SDR. And then lastly, he takes his C tiers and he lets his SDRs prospect those ones solo. And then lastly, number four, when you are lucky enough to take that meeting, if you have to sell a solution where you're selling into a new market or you're trying to do a consolidation of the burger and the shake, don't show them the whole meal all at once win the first feature first and then show them one more thing, win that. Next call, show them one more thing, win that as well. Alrighty, folks. Nick, how can people help us out here?
1: Well, you're a fool if you don't go steal Luke's account territory planning sheet. It's actually going to help you make quite a bit of money and you could afford Armand water wings. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on the show.